Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. We are a new magazine, website, YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to history and historical fiction. On this podcast, you'll find interviews with best-selling and acclaimed historians and novelists talking about great events and people of history. Head over to our website where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories. And they're all absolutely free. We also have annual subscriptions to our magazine at the shockingly low price of 9.99 in both pounds and dollars, which of course you can gift to friends and family. Anyway, on with the podcast. Please do subscribe if you enjoy it and give us a great rating if you can. In this episode, I'm chatting with Robert Lyman, the author of A War of Empires, which is an account of the war in the Far East, specifically India, Burma as it was, and Malaya as it was, from 1941-45. This is not a well-known subject, and the soldiers out there have been described as the Forgotten Army. There has been a view developed that this war was an imperialist enterprise between Britain and Japan, and the Indian and other colonial troops submissive participants. But Robert's book addresses this head-on, by giving a voice to the more than 2 million Indians who volunteered, in the full knowledge that they were fighting against the Japanese, and, eventually, for an independent India. As the British Commander-in-Chief of the Indian Army stated in 1945, every Indian officer worth his salt today is a nationalist. We'll also learn about the Chinese Army, which played a vital role in fighting one million men of the Japanese Imperial Army. I hope you enjoy the interview. Afternoon, Robert Lyman. Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Hello, Ollie. How very nice to be with you this afternoon. Um, so today we're talking about your new book, the subject of your new book, your, your, your new book, which is A War of Empires, Japan, India, Burma and Britain, 1941 to 45. Uh, now, this is obviously been a long time in the making because I can tell from your uh, acknowledgements and your thanks early on in, in the uh, in the introduction um, among um, and veterans in particular, and among among of them was George Macdonald Fraser. But how? Why does this story need to be told, and for how long have you been working on it? Well, it's a great question. I've actually been uh, in and around the Burma campaign for probably thirty years, um, interviewing veterans, going to India and Burma, uh, pulling notes together, getting ideas in my head, writing articles, writing a few books on the subject. I did my PhD on Bill Slim, and I wrote a book on the. Um, Japanese invasion of India in 1944 a few years back, um, which was triggered by a series of visits to Kohima in Nagaland, where I met quite a number of Naga veterans. And that got me thinking about um, the fact that there were indigenous peoples in these parts of the world who never actually have a voice in uh, stories of war, very rarely anyway. And, um, and meeting a number of veterans who played really interesting roles in Burma. And it's, it's very interesting, actually, as a subject. I'm shocked, actually, to think that I've been doing this for 30 years. But I every time I look at the, what I call the Burma campaign, it was the war in the Far East, um, it, I find something new. And it, it's quite interesting, actually. The last, in, in the week since the book was printed, it's been published on Remembrance Day, I've actually done a few more podcasts and um, presentations to various people. I've discovered new, new things. So it's quite extraordinary. People ask me, why are you still writing about the Second World War? Well, my answer is I have been doing this for so long, but every time I look at the subject, new stuff comes out and, uh, and new angles and new views. And I think the interesting thing is that this isn't a product just of 30 years 
thinking, Ollie, about the about the war in the Far East. It's actually it was an opportunity when I sat down with the wonderful team from Osprey Bloomsbury a couple of years ago, and we sort of mapped the book out and we talked about what the arguments would be. And I realized then, and I said to them, look, what's going to happen is as I review each part of the war and I reconsider what happened and reconsider the decisions that were made, I'm going to find new things and I'm going to find new ways of looking at it. Because one of the big challenges, and that's been proved right. I mean, I'm really quite excited about the book because I've come up with a number of they're not unique perspectives, not at all, but they are new ways of looking at the war in the Far East that perhaps rebalance our perspective. Uh, it's very interesting in 1944, 1945, you would have found no one in India or the UK who was in any doubt whatsoever that the war had been won uh, by the Indian army against Japan. It was an overwhelmingly Indian war. And yet in the, year, in the years that have, have followed, both in this country and in um, India, that reality has been forgotten. So I'm, I'm bringing that back to the forefront of people's mind to remind them actually that without the Indian army, without the remarkable sacrifice of the Indian people, there would have been no victory against the Japanese. And there are lots of reasons for that. And I go into that uh, in more detail in the book. I need to add actually that the book is, it's a traditional military history. I, I look at the campaign from a relatively high level, from the level of grand strategy, military strategy underneath that, and then operations as well. I don't really get into the detail of the tactics too often, although I do every now and again for, uh, for, for the purposes of the book at the, that time. Um, so it is, it is it's, a, it's a military history. It's the story of, as one of my friends keeps on saying, it's Rob, it's the story of generals talking to generals, and, and that's largely right. But it's it's a new view of, of an old campaign. And that's what I've tried to do. I haven't just gone to you know, rehash uh, what's already been said. Uh, but as I said earlier, it's, it's fascinating to see how many um, really important dimensions to this war there are that we have forgotten. So I've mentioned the, the, the reality of the Indian Army. The fact that um, the war was fought for a grand strategic purpose to support China is often forgotten as well. That's very important. This wasn't a war, as many Americans at the time uh, argued, was simply a war to, sa to save England's Asian colonies. Southeast Asia Command was equipped to, to, to stand for save England's Asian colonies. It wasn't that at all. Um, it was a little bit of an underhand political jibe, but I understand where it came from. The reality was China was really, really important to the um, to the grand strategy of the allies in the war. And America had a particularly perspicacious view about the um, the role of China, perhaps a, a, a better view, actually, than Britain did um, to the decision makers in London, Chiang Kai-shek, the Cantonese army, the, the Kuomintang were an irritation for much of the war. Uh, but actually, America was right. Roosevelt, in the first instance, was, was right. Being able to support Chiang Kai-shek and his armies and holding down the Japanese was an incredibly important component to, to, to strategy. And if the uh, Japanese hadn't been held by the nose by Chiang Kai-shek's armies at great cost to the Chinese, then that perhaps million men of the Imperial Japanese Army would have been um, freed to operate against um, America and Britain and so on in the Pacific, which would not have been a good thing. It's very hard to actually pin, I've really struggled to pin down the numbers of Japanese in China. Quite a few really good books uh, on the war in China. Rana Mitter's excellent book on China is, is revelatory, in fact. But it's, it's one aspect of the war that we in the West 
have forgotten. And I might just add here, one of the problems that we in the West have, of course, is the Eurocentricity of our, uh, of our analysis of the war. Our view of the war is very Eurocentric or very Northern Hemisphere centric, much to the irritation of uh, the, uh, those in the antipodes, but actually quite rightly, uh, much to the irritation of the Chinese. I, I was invited to a wonderful symposium in Taipei um, 2015, where with some Japanese scholars and Chinese scholars, we interrogated the role of China in the war really for the first time in, in, my, um, in, in my years of research and study. And it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience actually, realizing just how significant the Chinese were and to a degree how insignificant the, the Western allies were. So that's, that's the book, that's what, um, what I've done. That's why it's um, taken 30 years, I suppose. Um, my, my mother described it as a distillation of 30 years of, of effort. And I think she's absolutely right. It's 200, it's 560 pages, it's 200,000 words. And I have to say that the funny thing about this process was when I sat down with my wonderful editors at the start, we agreed that we'd, I'd write about 120,000 words. Well, within a few months after laying all my material out and sketching out the arguments and just building everything up. I sort of built it like a house. <laughs> I went back to uh, to the team, Marcus Kalper and um, uh, and Kate Moore, and I said, it's not going to work. I'm going to have to have at least three or 400,000 words, uh, maybe more than that. And, and actually, how about two volumes? And uh, they, they pushed back gently, and, and we ended up with a compromise at um, 200,000 words, which is probably the most you really want in a book like this. It's well, it's it's an epic piece of work. It really is. Um, I, I, I just want to uh, understand, just to set the scene, because I know it covers 1941 to 45, mm. um, but could you just set the scene for us of where the Allies are in 1941? Yes. Uh, and, and the Japanese, of course. Yes, okay. Uh, and that's, that's a really important point. We've, when you write a book and you tell a story, you've got to start at the beginning. And understanding the context is, is, is everything. There's no way anyone can understand what happened in the Far East without understanding this. So where were the Allies? The Allies were actually, of course, uh, occupying in a colonial context um, much of Southeast Asia, of the Americans in the Philippines. The American uh, Pacific Fleet had actually moved uh, off the um, the west coast of America and uh, was occupying and had been occupying for about a year its forward dispositions in Hawaii. And um, the French Indo French Indochina had been occupied the, by the Japanese in 1940 following the collapse of France uh, in the same year. Um, but the really important thing to understand is that whilst Japan was both a militaristic society and had been fighting in Japan on and off since about 1931, it had escalated, uh, developed in um, later years, particularly since 1937. Um, and they had a very, very strong infantry-based army that was still very, uh, very good, very uh, experienced. The Western Allies as a whole had no combat forces in the Far East. Now, it's important to understand this because simply having soldiers in uniform doesn't mean that they're ready, capable, or able to fight. Uh, and this is one of the great shocks that people had in 1942 when Singapore fell in February 1942. The question was, well, why have we, you know, why do we lose, you know, nearly 100,000 men in Singapore? The answer is they weren't, Malaya in particular, wasn't configured for defence and the troops that were sent there were not trained or prepared to fight. And, uh, and, and 
you know, from earliest times in history, if you engage an army that isn't organized, it doesn't have a fighting spirit, it's not prepared for war, it's going to lose. And that's in a nutshell what happened in 1942. So we can use, you know, hyper, hyperbole, we can use um, words to describe the humiliation of Singapore, and it was a humiliation, and we can use um, words to describe crisis and so on. And, and it was a terrible defeat, but actually we need to balance out in, in our consideration of these events what happened subsequently. Because the most amazing thing about 1942 was that the defeat of the British and the Indian armies in Malaya and Singapore, I need to add here that there was no such thing as a British Indian army. It was the British army and the Indian army. There yes, two I do want to get onto that. That's very interesting. Yes, we'll come back to that in a moment. But and the Americans as well, and the Dutch in the in the Dutch East Indies, Java and Sumatra, um, they weren't prepared for war, and they uh, and the fighting ended very very quickly in a matter of months because the Japanese were the Japanese have spent quite a lot of time uh, studying the uh, blitzkrieg operations in in France and the Low Countries in 1940, and they knew what they needed to do in order to be able to bring about a very rapid collapse of um, Allied control of um, Southeast Asia. And they did it, they did it very, very well. But that did not mean that the, um, the Allies then failed and collapsed and, and, and went home. And it didn't mean the end of the Indian Empire uh, the British Empire in India, for instance, nor indeed the uh, the ending of American control in the Pacific. This is where the Japanese seriously misjudged um, the uh, the impact of what they would do in the Pacific. And I'm not going to stray into the Pacific at the moment. I've written quite a lot about it, but for the purpose of this podcast, that the all that we really needed to, to be aware of is the Japanese spent a lot of time in the years going up to the Second World War in the same way that the Allies didn't spend a huge amount of time thinking about the Japanese, their army, their political predilections and what they were likely to do, nor too did the Japanese. Actually, the Japanese spent an enormous amount cocooned in an environment in which they were talking to themselves and not understanding what was going on in the West. There was no conception that America would react to Pearl Harbor, to the loss of its uh, its service personnel in the way that they did. And nor was there any conception of what the, uh, what the British might do. They, had, they, they sort of lived in this propaganda world of, of believing that the, the idea that this imperial edifice would collapse. Without understanding imperialism, the essence of imperialism, successful imperialism, is an agreement, a tacit agreement between those who are ruling and those who are ruled. Um, and it's a very, very nuanced arrangement where the rulers aren't obvious. The most important thing about successful um, governance is the governance itself. The fact that it might be imperial governance versus any other form of governance is actually a red herring. It's governance. And um, what the, Jap the Japanese had uh, viewed the world through a very ethnic-based lens. It's, it has very interesting connotations to the way many people were considering that in our own uh, day and age. But they viewed uh, the world through a very um, ethnic, I would say, racist lens, and they believed that race was everything. And of course, race is very little. You get two people of or three people of different races coming together. If their um, if their concerns and interests can join, then they are united, and 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 their race and ethnicity is meaningless. Uh, but 
and this is the problem with the Japanese conception of the world in 1939-1940. There's very good writing on the sub particular subject, you know, how racist Japan's view of the world actually was. And I think we, we, we've, we've tended to forget that actually in, 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 in modern times. So where were we? 1941, the Japanese launched a massive invasion of, the South of Southeast Asia. Uh, of course, the invasion of Southeast Asia occurred simultaneously with the attack on the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. They all happened on the same day. Uh, the dateline means that uh, the invasion appears to be on separate days, but they weren't on the same day. And uh, Malaya fell very quickly. Singapore fell uh, very shortly after. And then the Japanese invaded Burma in order to be able to capture Rangoon. In fact, the, the Japanese were very successful in their invasion of, of an ill-defended, I would say undefended Burma. It wasn't prepared for defense. And they took Rangoon very quickly and then decided with reinforcements they were receiving from the fall of Singapore to carry on to the rest of the country and they captured it by May and the very small British uh, army and the Chinese armies had been uh, pulled in uh, by Chiang Kai-shek operating as a, a single army uh, had left the country by May so Robert, it was quite a dramatic you. success. I'm ju just interrupting you there um, I, I'm just interested in the um, command structure in Burma because reading your book it seemed it was very interesting because it seemed to echo um, in some way George Orwell's Burmese days in, in that there are people on the ground that just don't seem uh, up to this kind of well this new world of Jap Japan uh, invading um, and, and I don't think General Wavell comes across too well either um, I, I, it's very hard not it's very hard actually because I, I am critical of Wavell, um, but he's not the person to blame uh, and, and indeed this is the real challenge when you when you start to analyze 1940 41 or 42 uh, the, the reality is that although Malaya had troops and had time to prepare for an invasion no one had given it proper thought it's an entirely different subject for, for this podcast but I think the problem with Burma is that Burma, of course, had been a British possession since 1885, so only 56 years by the time the Japanese arrived. Um, not a very long time at all. Burma had never been considered to be a th um, threatened by anybody apart from uh, Siam, Thailand, which had, um, had always been a, a difficult neighbor, uh, possibly even China, uh, who had had um, claims to parts of upper Burma. Uh, but the concept, I mean, if you'd asked anyone in, in India or anyone in the, in, the, in the area, the region, uh, who knew anything about the subject uh, in the 1920s or 30s, whether Burma was under threat, you know, under a conventional military threat, they would have said no, they, they couldn't work out who the enemy might be. You know, even, even uh, although Japan was recognized in many quarters to be a threat to the stability of the European and American colonial positions in the Far East during the 1930s, no one ever thought that Burma might be in the firing line. And this is the point, you know, so the armed forces in, in Burma were, were designed really for um, uh, civil defense, military aid to the civil power. They weren't designed at all to defeat a conventional army in a high intensity campaign. So I'm, I'm very critical in the book of the inability of the British and uh, the colonial governments to organize the effective defense of Burma. but. This is not something they could have done overnight. And it's something that was the product of 10 or 20 years of really uh, naive thinking about security. The biggest problem with the empire 
was actually in the 1920s and 30s, and this wasn't just in Burma, it was right across the empire, was considering who might be a threat or what might be a threat to various colonial possessions and doing something about it. Uh, bearing in mind also that uh, Britain basically had an empire it couldn't afford. And, you know, uh, bringing troops together and um, training them and giving them the right equipment to fight a first-class enemy was always going to be difficult. Then, of course, when you're imbued perhaps with views that the Japanese aren't really as good as they all, they're, they're made out to be, then you've got, you've, you've got a recipe for trouble. And that was the problem with 1942. There weren't enough troops, the troops weren't trained, um, troops, uh, and there were you know, associated problems, of course, in 1942 with the nature of the training, the nature of the equipment, the um, the nature of the Indian army of, uh, and the nature of the um, the Burma army, which Burma had become independent from India in 1937, and the, you know, but the Burma battalions and the equipment they had was just not prepared in any way, shape or form to, to take on the Japanese as an enemy. I'll just give you one very quick, quick example. The Japanese, of course, had lots of experience of fighting the Chinese and their, the construction of their infantry battalions and their uh, uh, infantry regiments and their divisions, so divisions about 15,000 men, were based on that training and that experience. They weren't always as good as uh, people make out them to, made them out to be. Uh, you know, the Japanese had been defeated very badly at Nomahom in 1939 by the Russians, and they were to be defeated again by the Russians very significantly in 1945 in Manchuria. But that aside, um, if you were to take the Japanese against in 1942 against a um, standard British or uh, Indian army battalion, the Japanese had lots of advantages. They had many more automatic weapons. They had integrated their artillery into their infantry units. So they were they'd created effectively combat teams where the infantry and armor were used to working together. They had a different approach to tactics that the, the British took some time to learn. And the, the Japanese were just experienced. Their troops were slick. And if you're fighting troops that know what they're doing and, and you don't, you just don't have the advantage. So lots and lots of things added together to make life very difficult for the Western allies in the Far East in 1942. Some of it their fault, a lot of it not. I mean, the basic problem is that no one in London or Delhi or Washington had actually done or for that matter, Singapore or Rangoon, has sat down and said, if the worst case, if the worst does happen and, and the Japanese invade, what do we need to do? And there, there were lots of very, this is perhaps where I'm harsher on Wavell than uh, for other reasons. He, you know, people made assumptions about the Japanese that were just not true. They, they, they assumed that they'd be easy to fight. They weren't a first-class European uh, army. Uh, they didn't know enough about the Japanese actually to make those decisions and they, they they sat on the basis of rubbish assumptions and that's that's another very dangerous thing to do. And Wavell, you, you could probably help in, in just describing who Wavell was. He'd been sacked by Churchill, had he? Yes, I mean, he'd had a bit of a rough ride with Churchill. Wavell was a was a great general. There's no doubt about it. He was a great man, and um, he had been commander in chief of the Middle East, so North Africa and Egypt. He had been removed by uh, Winston Churchill in 1942 and replaced by 
um, Claude Auchinleck, an Indian Army general. So Wavell was a, an, a general in the British Army. Auchinleck was a, a general commissioned into the Indian Army. And um, Auchinleck went on to command in North Africa in 1942. Uh, he was also sacked eventually and was replaced by Montgomery. But um, Wavell was then sent to India to be commander in chief. So effectively, Auchinleck and um, Wavell swapped posts. So Wavell didn't know a huge amount about the Far East. I need to say that although I am critical of Wavell as, as a commander in chief, he was a brilliant viceroy after 1943. But in 1941 and 1942, he was given a massive responsibility, which is effectively to coordinate the ally that's British, Dutch, American, Australian defense of the uh, Southeast Asian colonies against the Japanese. And he had a command that ran from Delhi all the way down into Sumatra. It, it was unsustainable. And he, and that combined with uh, his, his, uh, his opinion of the Japanese and his assumptions that structures and uh, force structures and so on across Malaya and Singapore were sufficient to stop the Japanese were his undoing. And, um, and that's the basic problem in 1942. There, there is another uh, interesting fact about, or a characteristic of the way in which the British sort of treated um, senior command in the army that I, I, I talk about in the book a little bit, which is this idea about um, searching out for a great man. The idea is that there is always a great man out there who's got the ideas to defeat an enemy and to pull the strategy together and, and all the rest of it. And, um, and I think Wavell had a little bit of that. It's very interesting, you know, his choice of commanders in subsequent years makes me think that he, he really did believe that if he got the right person, all things would be solved without actually sorting out the knitting, getting the right uh, troops, uh, training them properly in, in the conditions they were expected to fight, um, giving them the right equipment and so on, and preparing them for the environment which they're going to fight in, you know, the medical environment, the climatic and, and environment and so on. I, I say that because malaria was a really significant issue in the early years of the war. Uh, until it was effectively conquered by the British, not by the Japanese, but by the British and the Indians. And I think that's the real problem. The real success of the uh, Allied armies, and I call them the Allied armies because uh, they were very separate armies, British army, Indian army, Chinese army. The success of the, the armies was that they were able to convert defeat in 1942 to victory in 1944 and 45 by getting the basics right. Uh, and that we, we mustn't lose sight of that. Success in battle depends on a lot of things, the basic things working, getting the tax right, getting the equipment right, training the troops mass, you know, massively. By 1944, Indian recruits to the Indian Army uh, were undergoing 11 months of training before they even saw the enemy. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. You know, there was no idea, no, no view that we should train up large numbers of men and just throw them into battle. It, that, that, that idea had long gone. And yeah, let's America. talk a little bit about the Indian Army. So the, the armies in India, as they're called. Well, of course, the, the Indian Army, by 1939, about 200,000 men strong, was largely, had until then, been a, an, an army that was focused on providing military aid to civil authorities in India itself from a, a process of, uh, of innovation and change that began in 1938, a formal division, the 4th Indian Division, was created to be able to backfill and work alongside British forces where, wherever they might be deployed in the, in, the, in the world. And indeed, the 4th Indian Division went on 
to quite remarkable feats of um, success alongside the British Army in North Africa and Italy in, from 1942 onwards. Actually, they, they were deployed much earlier than that, of course, in, um, in the war, but in terms of fighting the, the Germans in, in North Africa in 1942 and then all the way into Italy. But the rest of the Indian Army was focused on India. And the primary uh, reason for the army at the time, apart from military and civil power, was to stop the Russians coming in from Afghanistan. So the war against uh, the Afghan tribes, uh, the tribes in the Northwest Frontier, was actually quite a significant one in the 1920s and 1930s. And whenever the Delhi or London sat down to consider what the threat to India might be, it always tended to focus back on this threat from Russia, which is really quite extraordinary, but it did, it did loom large. There was very little uh, sense that the Japanese might actually one day be knocking on India's door as they, as they did in 1941-42. Then of course we have the, the British Army. The British Army uh, was a different army. There's no such thing as I said at the start of a British Indian Army. We, I, I suppose, and you know, I get the sentiment that there are a number of, um, about half of the officers in the British Army in the early 1940s, sorry, half of the officers in the Indian Army in the early 1940s were British. They were commissioned directly into the Indian Army. They weren't members of the British Army on secondment. There were British troops, however, in India because it was re recognized that India was a very significant component of Commonwealth stroke imperial defense. So the British Army sent out uh, battalions and uh, so forth to India, paid for by the Indian government uh, for the defense of India. So we have two armies in India, the British Army and the Indian Army. They didn't actually do a huge amount together. They had different um, training uh, patterns. They had different manuals and pamphlets. They, they did things separately. Uh, officers on, in the whole, on, uh, in the main rather were trained or both Indian and British were trained at Sandhurst and then sent out to India. Uh, India had its own staff college and so on. So there was no, there was no sort of combined army. People have this idea that it was a, it was a British army with Indian soldiers and it was, it was, it was very, very different. It was the legally constituted army of India. And it's important that we all understand that. Uh, and of course, we have the Chinese army, very interesting army. We basically, this was the Kuomintang, the, the army of the, the, the Cantonese um, warlords in effectively the southern half of, of China, southern and um, southwestern part of China uh, in the mountains of um, Chongqing, uh, who were had been pushed into the mountains by the Japanese capture effectively of the, the Chinese literal uh, in the 1930s and um, and their, the, the, their push um, up the Yangtze and, and uh, in, into China proper. Now, and, and that was a, that was a very interesting army as well, the Chinese army, because it wasn't a single army. I think this is one of our, one of the allied confusions in 1941-42. It was a warlord army brought together uh, by Chiang Kai-shek, quite a remarkable man. Uh, my views of Chiang Kai-shek and what he actually managed to achieve have changed in the writing of this book. I've got a lot more time for him than I perhaps did in the past. And I think one of the most important things as an historian to do is really to understand the context of the decisions in which these people had to, had to the context in which these people had to make decisions. And Chiang Kai-shek had to fight off the communists. He had to uh, attract uh, inward investment and support from the United States. And he had to fight the Japanese at the same time. And he had to deal with quite a difficult British 
ally. He didn't like the British, uh, the, the, the British involvement in China went back a long way. Britain had been involved in the uh, in China around Shanghai in 1929 and actually ended up fighting Cantonese troops who'd got into the uh, into Shanghai. So, you know, he wasn't he, he wasn't a natural supporter of Britain, but he recognized that Britain was incredibly important to defeating the Japanese. And there's a, um, a wonderful series of meetings he had with uh, Indian uh, nationalists, including Mahatma Gandhi and, and Nehru in 19, early 1942, where he said, look, I, I know you guys don't like the Brits and I know you want independence, you'll get it eventually, but just you know, bite your tongue and support the Brits in the war against the Japanese, because without that, we're all going to fail. Uh, it's a very interesting, um, very interesting series of conversations that um, really um, re refute the the modern arrogance that you know history is binary and ideological. That there's a sort of one view of history that we just impose on the past, and everyone needed to have think and needed to have thought this way for this to happen. You know, we need to accept as historians that we're dealing with human beings in, in previous generations who actually think and behave largely as we do, and they have the capacity for dualism. And I, I talk about this in the book, that Indians had the capacity for recognizing that they wanted an independent India in due course, uh, and they wanted the legally constituted government of India to transfer to Indian control in due course, whilst at the same time recognizing that that very thing, this wonderful united India with a, um, a single government and uh, well-recognized authority across the country was under threat by the Japanese. And, you know, it wasn't Japanese good, uh, Indian nationalists good, British bad, you know, how did, how did the British make, make all this work? That's a really, that's a pretty ignorant way of looking at history. And, I, and one, of, one of the great tragedies, I think, in modern historical analysis, the way in which young people are often taught about history is to accept a binary view at the outset. I, and I would encourage a very different approach. The different approach is put yourself in the shoes of the people who had to make the decisions uh, and, and ask yourself why it was that they made the decisions they did. I'll just give you one really quick example. Many, many years ago, I was interviewing a venerable Indian uh, Air Force officer, veteran uh, in Guwahati uh, on the Brahmaputra. And I, he was a lovely guy, he'd fought, fought in hurricanes, flew hurricanes in the Second World War. He'd left school in 1942, aged 18, I think it was. And when I said, to, I actually said I was quite naive. I hadn't really thought this through myself. I said, well, why did you join the British Indian Air Force? He looked at me as though I had two heads. He really was quite surprised. And I, uh, he said, well, say that to me again. And then, then he sort of laughed. Uh, he laughed. He said, Rob, I didn't join the British Air Force, the Royal Air Force, I didn't join the British Army. I was an Indian. I'd never seen a Brit, but I knew, I'd read the newspapers. I knew that Nanjing, Nanking, I knew all about Nanking. I knew all about the Japanese. I saw J Japan threatening India. I saw the threat to India. And as he said, most of my classmates all joined up. We were all terrified of the Japanese. There were, you know, colonialism, imperialism, the British Raj, it didn't mean anything to us. We, we just saw the government of India, we saw India under threat, and we went, and do you know what, that was a really, really, really revelatory experience for me, hearing this old guy, since he passed away, talking like this, because he was educated, read the newspapers, intelligent guy, He's, he said, you know, well, he was a nationalist, I mean, a very interesting observation by Claude Auchinleck in 19, 
I can't remember exactly what year, 43, 44, he said he would expect all Indian officers to be nationalists. All good Indian officers were nationalists. Of course they were nationalists. They wanted an India owned by Indians. And I think this is really, really important to grasp. And it's one of the, the things I said right at the outset, you know, this book is, uh, has been a revelation for me. One of the things that actually it struck me is the Indian army that I was talking about earlier, 1939, of 200,000 men had risen up through recruitment, two and a half million Indians volunteered for the Indian Armed Forces, most of which the army throughout the war. At the end of the war, there were two million, the army was two million strong. They came not just from the recruiting areas that the British Army had traditionally, the Indian Army rather had <laughs> fallen into that trap as well, the Indian Army traditionally recruited in prior to 1939, they came from right across India. So in, by 1944, when the, the Indian Army was fighting and doing most of the fighting against the Japanese, 87% of the 14th Army was Indian. The great battles of Kahima and Imphal in 1944 and, and, and Burma in 1945 were fought by the Indian Army. These were men who would not, not naturally have joined the old Indian Army. And so what we see is that really a remarkable transmogrification, not just a transformation of the Indian Army. It didn't go from good to bad. It went from something to something else. And that's really, really important to understand. The Indian Army in 1944, certainly by 1945, was just not the Indian Army that it had been in 1939. A lot of the great traditions and the names and the regiments and all that were the same, but actually there was a transformation in kind, a transmogrification, which, which meant that it now for the first time represented the whole of India in a way that it never did before. In the, in the past, in the 1930s and before, it represented the Raj. It was an army designed to defend the government, an, an imperial government with effectively an imperial army. Well, that had gone. So if you're an Indian army officer in 1945 looking at the Indian army thinking, well, you know, what are the great structures of civil society? Law, education and schooling, um, a, a civil service, a functioning civil service, um, a press, a, a largely free press, a political discourse and a strong army. All those things were in place in India in 1945. And all, despite the pain of a very rapid separation from Britain in 1947, there was, I mean, the, the, the reality is having a strong and successful army, really, really important pillar of a civilized structured society helped both Pakistan and India to survive um, partition and and to develop into into the states they are today not, not without problems i'm not not for one moment suggesting that there aren't and they weren't problems but it was very significant and why do i say that well i say that 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 could not have happened with the army that existed in 1939 i'm afraid that's all we've got time for for now but don't worry part two will be up next week when robert will talk further about the far east campaign and the great general bill slim he's one of only three world war ii generals with a statue on whitehall Robert's new book, A War of Empires, was launched only this week and is available from all good bookshops. Thank you and good night.